Welcome to episode 26 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary from our highly sophisticated bunker in the William <laughs> Mail Center by my good friend and co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Scott Sloat. Doc, episode 26. Halfway. Halfway to a year. And, wow. and we've not been canceled yet. We have not been canceled. So after today's episode, <laughs> who knows, right? Who knows, who yeah. Knows? Yeah, so. We both still have jobs, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, yeah. we're thriving here. Rule number one of the podcast, <laughs> don't get fired. So we um, would love for you to connect with us on Twitter. You can find us at V&S Pod, and you can connect with us by email through the email address various and sundry podcast at gmail.com and we're on facebook various and sundry podcast you can connect with us there and while we're thinking of this we are inviting listener participation we have had some requests for a q and a episode where we answer listener questions and so we are we're on board. We're going to do it. So now you, listener, have to step up and actually send us questions. Yeah, and connect with us any any of our uh, places where we're at. So Twitter, Facebook, or through the email. Uh, we'd be happy to, to take that. And if you ask a really good question, it could turn into a whole episode. Or uh, we could do, if we get enough questions, we'll, we'll do some sort of Q&A session. Yeah, yeah. So... We'll, we'll do this probably for a few weeks. We'll try to remind you just to give us some time to build up a good, hopefully a good reservoir of mm, questions for word. us to, to draw from. And um, we, we, we look forward to this. I, I think this has great potential, and I'm hopeful that our listeners will step up to the plate. We did have a new review this past week. Yeah, yeah, from one of my students, Malachi and Muncie. Yeah. <laughs> Malachi and Muncie. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So grateful for his review. He's a good dude. Um, and so we want you, in this case, to be like Malachi. Mm -hmm. We want you also to take the time, if you haven't already, to go ahead and give us a review on the podcast app and uh, a rating as well. Five stars only, please. We're, we're, we're tracking so far. People have have done us a solid and, and, and helped us out with that. Yeah, we're open to criticism, but send it to the email. Leave a yeah, five-star totally, review. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, save your scathing remarks and snide comments for email or maybe even Twitter. I mean, we, we, we'd probably be okay as long as they're not too scathing, right? We, yeah. yeah, yeah we, we're, we're fine Twitter's fine. Yeah, Twitter or, or, Twitter. or yeah. Facebook is fine. Just don't do it on the podcast app. So in any case, we... Uh, are excited about this listener participation and another form of listener participation that we've talked about and I think we're ready to move forward with. Yeah, is, I think so. Is the fact that we want you to read a book with us. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked about having you read along with us the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And we would have been doing this sooner except for the fact that it's been very difficult to actually get copies of this book because it's so crazy popular within our circles that they sold Amazon out, and it's still difficult to get it. You can get it directly through the Crossway website, though. And so um, we just feel like we need to move forward. And so we are going to start reading, or discussing, I should say, with our next episode that will launch probably July 7th is when that next yeah. episode will yeah. launch. And we're going to discuss the first 
eight chapters, I think. Eight what, chapters, yeah. That's what we just now that's bef- what we landed on. Before you freak out, listener, that's like I don't know, is it sixty pages maybe? Something like that. I'm not that, I'm not sure. I didn't have a copy of the book when each, we were discussing that. Each chapter is like six or seven pages kind of thing. It's real small, it's easy to read. And it's something that you could even do as part of your devotional time, where it's it, it's that sort of vibe to it that it, it's very uh, soul nourishing and very easy to read, very encouraging. So that's something that you could even build into your devotional times between now and then, and you know you could easily catch up to us and be ready for that. Oh yeah, yeah, a chapter a day and two on Saturday, and yeah. you'll you'll be fine. Yeah. And uh, are we are we ready to do this? Yeah, we, I we, think we're ready for the major announcement. We we promised a. Big announcement last episode. Major announcement. Major announcement. If we had the breaking news jingle, bum, 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 who's going to make the announcement? Is it going to be I you? Think you? I think you need to make the announcement. I think it was your idea. Okay. So we are excited to, na- to announce here on the Various and Sundry podcast that we are going to interview the author, Dane Ortland. For the podcast. Yeah, the book that we'll be reading, Gentle yes. and Lowly. The yes. author is Dana Ortland. We're going to interview him about the book. Exactly. It's very and, exciting. And so he will go down in the in the annals of history as the very first guest on the Various and Sundry podcast. Yeah. There have been many who have vied for that honor, correct? Yeah, at least at least three that come to mind. <laughs> yeah. That of like, oh, I'd love to come on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. What? Yes, indeed. So um, we will be giving more details and our our plan is we will air that epi- that uh interview as the last piece of our discussion so we'll do i think what we decided is three episodes yeah three weeks discussing the book where we'll have as part of the episode our episode discussing whatever section of the book we're working through and then um from there at the fourth one will be a full episode interview with Dane about the book. And so I'm, I'm very excited about that. Dane's a good guy. We know each other from our Wheaton PhD days. He started the program shortly after uh, I finished the program there, and we've kept in touch. So good guy, and uh, the book is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Good. Looking forward to the interview. Should yeah, be fun. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So when it comes to sports, there's not a lot happening still, unfortunately. Right, John? Yeah, I mean, NBA and uh, Major League Baseball is sort of hemming and hawing about how to open, when to open. Uh, the NFL is having discussions about when to open, how to open. Um, some MLB players are stepping back and saying, I won't play this year. Right. Um, which I think I think is to be expected. I, I, yep. I don't think that's a... That's unexpected, but we'll uh, we'll see what happens. I think the big news this week um, was that Cam Newton, uh, former Auburn quarterback, far, former Heisman Trophy winner, uh, former uh, failed Super Bowl bid, right? Uh, <laughs> after extensive injuries, has signed with the New England Patriots. Yes, that will be interesting to see what Belichick does with. Um, with Cam Newton, very diff- very different quarterback than Tom Brady. Yeah, well, and when Belichick does anything, you're like, oh shoot, what are we missing? <laughs> you, you know, uh, what what does he know that the rest of us don't know? Right, and it, it will raise the question of it, it it won't settle it, but you know, Belichick and um, and Brady have been this dynamic duo for what goodness, 
15? 15, 16 years. More wow. than that. Well, when did they win that? I think it was 2002 they won the Super yeah, Bowl together. It's some crazy number of years, right? So that's 18 years. Yeah. And so there's, there's, there's always been the debate, like, well, which was more significant? Is it more Belichick turned Brady, who, was, who would have been perhaps a good NFL quarterback into the greatest of all time, arguably? Yeah. Or was it Belichick really isn't that great a coach, but Tom Brady was this transcendent talent that managed to carry Belichick? You know, So some of that will be, that'll be one of those storylines that goes through the fall in terms of um, you know, as if one season's going to determine that. But yeah, I'm excited for that thirty to for thirty to see yeah, you know those exactly. eighteen years. Yeah, and uh, I know for me another piece of sports news is uh, the basketball tournament, the TBT, starts in uh, on July 4th, and that's that's a tournament that's been going the last I don't know probably three or four years now, and it's a collection. Th- these teams are made up typically of players who played overseas who were or maybe had a cup of coffee in the nba kind of on that borderline of making the nba and then went off into you know more lucrative con uh, careers overseas Mm -hmm. and they have this summer basketball tournament and these teams are often uh organized by sort of alumni groups right so there's a team that has a whole bunch of former ohio state players there's a team that's traditionally had um a chunk of former syracuse players and such and uh, that's so that's live basketball that's going to be starting up July 4th, which at least will be something entertaining. Part of what's gotten this tournament some notoriety is the fact that last year they used what's called the Elam ending. Yeah, I was about to say they used that, that funky ending, right? Yeah, which not, not to go too deep dive into this because I'm sure many of our lesson, listeners are, are, are not that interested. But basically, instead of having a traditional ending to a basketball game where you just play until the clock runs out, this ending, once you get to like the four-minute mark left in the fourth quarter, they turn the clock off, and then they add like 10 points to whatever score the team who's leading has, and then you play to that number. So if, if, if the team, you know, the team that's leading has, you know, 72 points, you add 10, and the first one to make it to 82 wins. So... The idea is that it makes it more exciting. It's less of the foul at the end of the game sure. kind of thing and the sort of herky-jerky stop and start kind and of And the form. game ends on a made basket. Always ends on a made rather basket. Rather than a series of fouls or, or stalls. Or even just the or, clock running out. Yeah, yeah it, it eliminates the stall feature as well in terms of that. So anyway, um, that I think starts— they did, they did it in the All-Star game this last year? They did it in the NBA All-Star game this past year. I don't year. remember how that went. It was okay. Okay. Just something different. Yeah, you know, not not something I think realistic for actual meaningful NBA basketball games, but it was discussed. It's been discussed as a alternative to overtime during the regular season in the NBA. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, and so hmm. you know, you know how hockey has sort of an alternative ending, and even you know football, right? In in the NFL, you play a fifteen minute quarter and, until someone. You know, unless someone scores a touchdown, and uh, and then if it's if at the end of fifteen minutes you just say eh, we tied, you can't do that in the playoffs. Obviously, no, you have to you got to keep you going. You play until there's an actual winner. So anyway, that's uh, something to look forward to starting July fourth. They're quarantining all twenty four teams in Columbus. They're actually playing this in Columbus. It'll be a good litmus test to see how yeah. this works, and you know, it'll give hope to. The NBA coming back into yep. July and Major League Baseball coming back into July. Yeah, 
And it's also a uh, it's a winner take all tournament. So the only people the only players that get any money out of this is the winning team. Oh wow! And they play for a million dollars. So they divide the million up among the players. So it's not a million each, okay. but still, okay. you know, you got you got, bucks. You got yeah. 10, 12 guys in the team. You divide it up. Like that's still that's still nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. So that'll be interesting if you're desperate for live sports. But I think we're ready now. Are we okay. ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What's our topic for today, Doc? Yeah. So today is part one of our topic, which is going to be the kingdom of God and social justice. So, dum, dum, dum. yeah, we'll, we'll see how this conversation goes. <laughs> I know, I'm already sweating. Yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah, and not because we turned the air off in the yeah. studio. But. So I think that this is one of those topics that uh, I've often, uh, I mean, I regularly address in the classroom in my New Testament theology class. And I find that this is one of those topics that students tend to be especially engaged mm-hmm. as we talk about it because it feels so immediately relevant to thinking about um, issues going on in our culture and our society. Sure, sure. So, yeah. How, however, I will say, something that doesn't get brought up in that conversation is the kingdom of God. There, I, I don't well, see... Well, it does in my classroom, but I'm It talking, does in your classroom, You're just talking about culturally. I, I'm talking about culturally, yeah. or even one-on-one conversations around campus with students. Um, this is something that, that... I mean, part of the reason we're taking this is because a student came to us and said, I'd like to hear you guys talk about this. And Social justice, mm-hmm. yes, in particular, yes. Uh, but uh, something that's missing from that conversation, I think, is kingdom of God, and yeah. so uh, we want to come at it from that angle uh, and and have a have a decent discussion of, about it, and then and then even try to model what a good discussion about a hot topic is, rather than throwing out various hot takes and different yes. things like that. Yes, indeed. We're, we're going to try. So this is part one. Next episode, we'll we'll come back around and finish it up in terms of uh, part two. But I think it'd probably be good for us to start with this whole notion. And, and again, part of what we want to model here is, okay, we start with what the Bible says, mm-hmm. right? That, yeah. that the most important thing to determine in any of these kinds of issues is let's start with what does the Bible say? And then from there, we can move out into other areas that should inform what we think about a particular issue or topic. But again, it's so vital and so often missed, I think, of saying, you know, here's this big buzz, you know, buzz issue in culture, you know, ooh, like pick your your favorite hot topic or cultural issue, you know. And it's immediately... Okay, so what group says this and who says that? And it's like, can we start with what does the Bible say? And that doesn't mean that we're automatically going to solve the issue by that because, of course, people will disagree with what the Bible says or they will disagree about what the meaning of what the Bible says sure. and how it relates to the topic. So w- with that understanding that we're going to we're going to start with Scripture, Doc, as the resident New Testament <laughs> theologian here on campus, can you give, can you give me a, a, a layman's understanding of what is the kingdom of God? Yeah, and of course, you, you, you can imagine that even within scholarly circles, there's debate as to how best to define this. But I, I've always found the, uh, the definition by uh, Graham Goldsworthy to be helpful, which he just simply defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Hmm. And there's a lot to unpack in that, but basically I think that's a good, helpful starting point, right? That it's 
God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And this is where uh, I think it's helpful because too often people think that the kingdom of God is a New Testament concept only or largely, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so you you know you say, oh, when I want to find out what the Bible says about the kingdom of God, I should go to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it has Old Testament roots, right? Okay, so so what are some of those what are some of those roots for us? Well, it starts in Genesis one hmm. when, you, when you think about the fact that when God creates Adam as Adam and Eve as His image bearers, He gives them a royal role. They are to rule over and subdue the earth. They are to exercise dominion. They are to rule over uh, creation under God's ultimate authority, and so that that establishes a precedent for. What God is doing is establishing his kingdom hmm. here on this earth, and he's going to exercise that rule through Adam and Eve, through his vice regents, which is a big you know, fancy term for yeah. his, his, his representative, his subordinate king, yeah. right? You know, his, you know, so that Adam and Eve serve as royal figures ruling over creation under the ultimate authority of God himself. So they, ex- through, through their actions, are supposed to extend the rule of God in tangible ways over creation. And uh, it's safe to say that this is then passed on to, to all humanity through Adam, right? That, that, that this uh, subdue the earth, rule over it, is passed on to all of us. However, uh, Genesis 3 comes into the mix, right? Right. The fall happens. Right. H- how does sin impact uh, that dominion and that authority? Right. So when you look at what happens in Genesis 3 with the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve, what you there's a lot going on there, but at least part of what happens there is Adam and Eve fail in their responsibility to rule over creation because they were supposed to exercise God's authority even over the serpent, protecting sure. the purity of the garden sanctuary. Remove him from the garden. Remove him from the garden. He's impure. He's impugning God's uh, rule and now we have, speaking of impugning God's rule, we've got uh, the lawnmower going. Lawnmower <laughs> or a leaf blower on the roof or something. Who knows? My Do goodness. they not know what's happening in here? There are no leaf blowers or lawnmowers in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Indeed. So in any case, that, that rebellion by Adam and Eve, which in essence the serpent says to them, you can determine right and wrong for yourself. You can rule over creation without having to submit to God's rule mm-hmm. over you. And, of course, that completely upends things. And as part of the, the judgment, God says, basically, instead of exercising dominion over creation, creation's essentially going to work against you. It's not going to cooperate with you. You're going to find hardship as you try to still exercise dominion. But in the midst of that, there's this promise that there's one coming who is going to defeat the serpent and reestablish God's rule over creation through a human king, the serpent, crusher. the serpent crusher, and that's the promise of Genesis three. Okay, okay. Now uh, this gets developed throughout the Old sure. Testament, right? Um, we see uh, Israel come on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does that relate to, to the kingdom of God? And yeah, so you've got uh, first God makes this promise to Abram later Abraham, that through his line, he's going to be the one through whom this serpent crusher comes. And as part of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 
you know, you can break that down in a couple different ways, but I prefer to think of it as what God promises is that uh, he promises people. He's going to multiply Abraham into this great nation, which becomes the nation of Israel. He is going to give them a place mm-hmm. to dwell with him, the, the promised land, and that he is going to give them his presence. He's going to be with them. Hmm. And so eventually, as you pass that promise on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, his 12 sons, and then they end up in Egypt and they multiply into this people group, but not formally a nation at that point. They lack a place. Yeah, they're they're outside of the place where God has, has uh, prepared for them. Hmm. That Through the Exodus, God brings them out of Egypt, brings them to Sinai, and then forms them together as an actual nation. And in the language describing that, you've got this picture of them being a kingdom of priests. Hmm. That in essence, Israel is going to function as a corporate Adam figure when it comes to ruling over the promised land. So that's that's getting us to Israel. That's getting us to Israel. And so and so just to just to highlight, going back to your definition, that's there's there's God's people, yep. right? Uh, there's they they have a place, uh, and they are living under God's rule and yep. blessing. And and they also have God's presence with them, right? You know, they've got the right, tabernacle, the tabernacle, so which is later developed into the temple. Sure. And eventually, as Israel's history unfolds, God makes it clear that that the line of that this king that's promised is going to come from a descendant of David, who becomes the sort of paradigmatic king for uh, for the people of Israel. However, I, I think it's important to point out that that Israel doesn't always do a good job of being God's people and living oh, no, under God's no, rule no. And, and and living under His blessing or even even honoring His presence. Right there, there's yeah. constant rebellion. There's constant idol worship. Yep. Uh, there's constant damage done to to Israel, the nation, and, yep. and the surrounding nations by Correct. Israel. Correct. They certainly fall short of that. And uh, in this promise that God makes to David, he says, essentially, there's a descendant coming from your line who's going to rule over an eternal kingdom. Hmm. And uh, that is, in essence, the, that's the serpent crusher. And so... As we get into the sort of Jewish expectation after the close of the Old Testament, the hope of the Jewish people tended to be focused on this promised Davidic king. Sure. In in a political sense, right? Yes. Now, that largely developed into the idea. So if we're sort of fast forwarding, you walk on the streets of Capernaum, let's say, in the first century, and you ask the average, uh, you know, Joe Israelite, What's the kingdom of God? They would focus on God's going to send a military deliverer, a king from the line of David, who, if I may borrow a loaded phrase, he's going to make Israel great again. Oh, boy. (laughs) And so he's going to restore Israel's independence, Mm -hmm. kick out the Romans, and establish us as the, the regional power to which the Gentiles will be subject to and establish uh, a period of peace and prosperity. That's kind of the first century hope. And, and we see this in history. We see occasionally there there comes a Jewish military leader who um, riles up the people, e- even yes. after the time of Christ, yep, right? Where, absolutely. Where, where they'll rile up the, rile up the Jewish, Jewish people and go attack the Romans. And the Romans, just about every time, come in and just wallop <laughs> them. Yes, yes, indeed. And so that's sort of the expectation that's floating in the air that when, so when Jesus comes on the scene 
And this is no accident that the starting point for Jesus' public ministry, as you look at Mark's gospel and the other gospels, is essentially they present Jesus showing up and saying, um, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And you're like, whoa, okay. That, you know, so you can understand why the, the sort of standard expectation of the Jewish people is like, all right, here's our guy. He's going to lead us against Rome. Yeah. However. <laughs> However, as, as, as Jesus' uh, ministry unfolds, it becomes very clear he has absolutely zero interest in that agenda. Well, and it seems that the disciples, even up until his crucifixion, believe that he is this military leader. At, at some level, yes, yeah. Right, because uh, 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 Simon the Zealot cut, cuts off somebody's ear, right? There, there's, there's a number of things going on there. And yeah. um, it's even, oh, goodness, I'm reaching here. Uh, but <laughs> but Judas, in a sense, it's, Judas, in a sense, believes that he is, by, by selling Jesus over to the authorities, he thinks he's going to cause revolt and cause... Yeah, it's hard to know what Judas's motives are, but that is one possibility, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, that maybe he thought he was triggering the sort of, okay, we need to trigger some sort of confrontation that's going to force Jesus to be like, okay, I've got no choice. We're going we're gonna to start fighting. And that doesn't happen, obviously. That doesn't happen. But I think that there's this, not strange, but unexpected dynamic. We'll put it this way. This unexpected dynamic about the kingdom of God when you consider that um, on the one hand, Jesus runs around saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. Yeah. And the logic behind that, I think, is pretty clearly because the king is here. Mm-hmm. Wherever the king is, that you know, the kingdom is 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 there, essentially. And so and and yet he also makes it clear at other points in his in, in in his ministry that the kingdom of God has this future element, that the the kingdom of God is something that will is not yet here. It will arrive in some fashion in a fuller sense at some point in the future. Yeah, he goes back and forth between those, between parables about the kingdom of God. Right, right. And so there's this already not yet dynamic that you have to kind of understand when it comes to the kingdom of God, that there is some sense in which the kingdom of God is already here, Mm -hmm. that the active reign of God is here because Jesus is here, Mm -hmm. and he is exercising his rule over creation. I mean, you think about some of the miracles in light of this. He's calming the sea. He is casting out demons. He's he's healing sicknesses. He's exercising authority over the created order. And so there should be, uh, those are pretty clear signs that at some level the kingdom of God is here. Yeah. And yet he makes it clear that it's not fully here. We're not, we're not, we're not, we don't have the full consummation of the kingdom where the new creation is fully here and every hint of sickness and disease and opposition to God is fully eradicated. So you've got that already dynamic, uh, yeah. already not yet dynamic going on there. Which, which is, I, I think, is crucial, and I think was a real game changer for me when I understood the already not yet dynamic of the kingdom. Sure, it made um, so much so much more sense about my own life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and this came this comes up in my uh, exploring the Bible class regularly. You know, yeah, we'll we'll get to a point where we're discussing, and and the conversation goes. John, how how can I both be a child of God mm-hmm. and remain sinful? Right. Well, <laughs> you're experiencing an already and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. You're you're already a child of God. You you are saved. You are ushered into the kingdom. 
However, there's a not yet feature of that as well. Right. Where you are waiting to be fully redeemed mm-hmm. um, on the day of the Lord. Right. And I think that um, that that's the tension that, that we experience um, as Christians living in this fallen world still. And that is, uh, I think, perhaps helpfully illustrated by uh, by engagement, right? You okay. think about engagement. And so when 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 a when a man and a woman get engaged, they they enter this awkward phase. Yes. Because they've essentially said to each other, We intend to marry. We intend to make a lifetime covenant together. Mm-hmm. But they've not made the that covenant yet. And so they start making plans and making decisions that at some level are appropriate for a married couple. They start thinking about where are we going to live and what are we going to do and what is our married life going to look like. Maybe they start to merge finances and these kinds of things. Oh, yeah. But at the end of the day, they are not married. married. And so until they stand before God and make that commitment, that covenant, the, the marriage is not fully consummated it's not it's not in full force and -hmm. so there's this awkward phase of time where it's we start to think like we're married we start to plan like we're married but we're not married Mm -hmm. and there are still things that obviously even in that engaged engagement phase are inappropriate for a couple to experience that are only reserved for the actual marriage even though you're starting to make plans on other fronts towards being married. You start to think like you're married, but in fact, you're not. So there's this awkward, already not yet dynamic in sure. engagement. No, that's that's really helpful. Um, and I think where part of the conversation lies with, with already not yet in the kingdom of God is how much already and how much not yet. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Before we cycle to that, though, I, I do want to put a, a bow on it, so to speak, in terms of the kingdom of God is is one of those dynamics where, in his parables, Jesus makes it clear it's not what you're expecting, in sort of the first century Jewish expectation. Sure, and it culminates with the strange sort of coronation that Jesus has at the cross. Like mm. here's this king, so you expect this sort of big celebration of coronation, and instead his coronation is his crucifixion, and that his resurrection. Is, is, is part of that picture, too, so that through his death and resurrection, he launches the, uh, the sort of the, the already not yet dynamic of the kingdom being present because he, he's conquered death. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to rise from the dead in that sense. And so that guarantees our eventual resurrection and participation in the new creation with resurrected bodies. But it's through the unexpected means of the cross and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, and, and his death has some elements that you would expect in a coronation, right? Uh, the the uh, he is crowned with, yes. with yep. thorns like a yep. king. He has a robe put on him, and even the placard above the cross announces him as "This is Jesus, King of the Jews." Yeah, it's it's obviously intended to be mocking and ironic. Sure, but that's one of the one of the cool features of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion is the irony is actually telling you who he is. They think they're mocking him. What kind of king is this? And and the gospel writers are saying, yeah, exactly. He's the kind of king that, instead of using earthly force to establish his kingdom, gives his life for his people and lays it down to establish a greater kingdom. 
than any earthly kingdom. Right. I've heard it put it this way. Uh, you know, mo- most kings, uh, or actually all kings, uh, their reign always ends when they die. But for Jesus, his reign really begins yeah. uh, when he dies. Yeah, absolutely. And so, okay. And then, of course, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost is kind of the down payment, right? The Spirit is talked about in, in, in the New Testament as the, as the down payment of the fullness of the inheritance of the new creation that we can expect. Yeah. So that's, yeah. again, part of that already, not yet. We already experience the work of the Spirit in our lives. He dwells in us, but we're not fully sanctified. We still have remaining sin in our lives that we must fight against in the power of the Spirit. So that's part of that already, not yet tension. So now... Okay, so now the question... <laughs> How how do we work out how much already and how much not yet? Well, that's really the 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 sticking point in terms of thinking about how does this apply to our lives today, not just as individual Christians, as important as that is, yeah, but as the corporate people of God, as mm-hmm. the church, both considered sort of universally across different locations and and, and such as well as individual local congregations. What does that look like? And, and really, I think part of how you can boil it down to is how much transformation of this fallen world should we expect in our efforts to uh, communicate the gospel and ex- exert influence through our uh, transformed lives here in this world? Mm-hmm. That, that kind of becomes the 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 heart of the issue in my mind how much should we expect so maybe maybe we should talk about kind of the extremes you want to talk about the extremes to sort of set the the stage for this sure do you do you have a uh an area or topic you want to zero in on and talk about and and use it for both extremes yeah yeah we can do that um let's let's pick one that is not as sort of uh, currently charged. Okay? Do, you, do you want to go? So How about poverty? That was, that was what I was going to throw yeah, out. Yeah, 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 let's, yeah. Let's do poverty. Okay. So poverty is, is, is an issue that we can, I, I think, talk about hopefully without you know, instantly lighting the torches <laughs> on the subject. So poverty. How much should we as believers expect poverty to be eradicated in this fallen world? That, that's a legitimate question. Mm-hmm. So the extremes would be, on, on the one hand, you have the people who are like, we should expect to basically, through various means of public policy and um, charitable work and all these other sorts of things, we should be able to expect to basically eliminate poverty. If we just get the right public policy in place and create job opportunity or whatever, we can eliminate essentially poverty sure and that would be and that would be an expression of the kingdom of god coming to rule in this fallen world and we would agree i think that that would be too much not yet correct or um no no too much already too much already too much already. yes sorry sorry yeah my bad too, yes, much, too already. much already that the expectation that it confuses a reality that will only come true in the new creation mm-hmm. that we can essentially match that here in this fallen world. Now, the other extreme would be to say, poverty is always going to be with us. Jesus says poverty. You'll Jesus always basically have the said, poor. you'll always have the poor among you. Yeah. So why bother? Like, why bother? We're just going to sort of hold on for the return of Jesus and, you know, just kind of 
hope that at some level, you know, maybe individually here and there kind of help a person. But ultimately, we have no hope of changing culture or transforming a even a community. And so why even bother? Yeah. But let's just let's just preach the gospel exclusively mm-hmm. and never do anything remotely related to um, thinking about ways that perhaps we could address this particular issue through uh, church programs or through public policy or something like that. Those are kind of the extremes. And so on that that extreme, there's too much of the not yet. Mm-hmm. There's this, well, we're just going to throw up our hands and say we can't do anything about it, and Jesus will sort it all all out in the end anyway, so why bother trying to do anything? Mm-hmm. It, it can be kind of lumped into the it's all going to burn mentality, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it's, kind of the, the, the buzz phrase for a sort of caricature of that view, kind of. But yeah, yeah. No, I think that's uh, that's a. I, th- I think poverty is a helpful way to see that because there there are those responses, and, and at some point we also have functional responses. We may not naturally go, you know, and, and cognitively go. Oh, we're always going to have the poor, therefore I don't need to do anything. Right. Um, but but we functionally will will do those things, and so I, th- I think that's an area that we need to be careful of, as well as the other side where we put all of our hope. Correct in public policy or yes. uh, good deeds and and trying to to right. um, make poverty go away. Right, and and on that public policy front, um, I think it's important to note both so- both extremes of the of the political spectrum fall prey to this. Okay, explain that a little bit. Meaning, so if you're more on the sort of uh, progressive liberal end of the spectrum politically. There is this inclination to say that um, basically if we just institute the right laws and policies and government programs, mm-hmm. we can create we, we can basically eliminate poverty, for example. Like so basically the hope is put in we need to get the right politicians in place, the right public policy in place, the right government structures in place, the right government programs in place, sure. and we can solve it. The other extreme can just as easily fall into that in terms of thinking, well, what we need to do is get the right um, policy in place or uh, even the right candidates in place who might appoint the right kind of judges to ensure mm-hmm. that the right kinds of policies are enforced. So that we or, have the right laws in order to, to eliminate Correct. Those. Yeah. Both extremes, whether it's sort of on the left or on the right— can easily fall prey to this putting our hope in that that kind of activism. Even though the activism looks very different, the root idolatry, yes, and it is idolatry, mm-hmm. to think that our ultimate hope, even for this society, is found in the political process. Both sides and points in between fall prey to that kind of idolatry. Hmm. That the answer is political power or public policy or government structures or programs, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is similar to kind of kind of what the Jews were expecting. You know, like the kingdom of God is a military power, or or in in this case, a political power, right? Uh, getting the right uh, structures in place, getting the right laws, getting the right programs, whatever it be. Correct. That, that's similar to the way the Jews responded, and and Jesus's message is that the kingdom of God is upside down. It, right. It's it's antithetical to those things. It, it's it's wholly other, 
Right, that it doesn't work on worldly principles. Mm -hmm. So Jesus will say things like, the first will be last and the last will be first. Yeah. Um, and, and just the, the expectations of what that looks like. Even when, his, when uh, James and John say, we, want the, we want, want the best seats in the kingdom, one on your right, one on your left. And Jesus is like, do you realize that the path to that is suffering? <laughs> you realize that that's that's not all about just sort of living in earthly luxury and commanding people. It's self-sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. That's that's the nature of this kingdom. Are you still in? You know, there's yeah. there's sort of that that kind of challenge to to them to that mentality. But why don't we, as we wrap up this episode, this section of the discussion, maybe just a couple of quick practical applications in terms of just thinking about the whole area of the kingdom of God, not talking about public policy or social engagement at this point, but just individual applications. So when you think of the kingdom of God and you have a student as you're maybe one of your classes and they're saying, okay, practically speaking, why does this matter? How, how does this apply to me as an individual Christian, this this idea of the kingdom of God? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the most natural thing that I think of is uh, – uh, in that already not yet dynamic, mm -hmm. one of the places where we can expect to see some already is in the local church, um, yeah. and and that that and that if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you need to be in community with other believers at a local congregation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so um, the, those local congregations are um, we we might we might call them embassies of the kingdom of God. Right? Yeah. They, they are they are places where where God's kingdom is real uh, and is lived out. Yeah. Um, and I would say related to that is understanding that our primary citizenship, our primary allegiance yes. is God's kingdom, mm -hmm. not any earthly kingdom. And so that, that's not to say that it's completely inappropriate to have some measure of appropriate appreciation for and even carefully defined pride mm -hmm. in your in your country. Right, you know, I'm, I don't think biblically that's completely excluded. Yeah, but it is so far diminished in comparison to your allegiance to God's kingdom that I think there needs to be a very clear distinction of our primary allegiance is to God's kingdom, mm -hmm. and that will oftentimes conflict with our earthly allegiance to any sort of uh, national national identity. And we should expect it. We should expect that there's a clash between between God's kingdom and our national kingdom. And if there's not, if you've never experienced any tension between sort of, uh, to put it in our context, of being a good American mm -hmm. and being a faithful Christian, if you've never experienced any even thought of tension between those two, that's concerning. Yeah. Because there, there should be at least some measure of tension there. Yeah, and and not that we have anybody in mind or that we're thinking about anybody in particular, but but that would indicate to me that there's a there's an idol of the heart there um, yeah, for the absolutely. American dream, for the American way. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a good place for us to put a bow on this particular phase of the conversation. Yeah. Next episode, we'll talk much more about the sort of the social justice piece of it and how to think through the relationship between the kingdom of God and social justice. But I think we'll put a bow on it there. And move to our athlete. We well, do we want to do we want to touch on any resources for the kingdom of God before we? Uh... Yeah, we can do that. Um, I think a, a good one there that we've listed here is uh, a book by George Eldon Ladd called "Gospel of the Kingdom." It's short, very reader friendly. Mm. 
Yeah, George Ladd, good, good, uh, good author. He went. When did he write that book? Seventies. Seventies. Mm-hmm. So it's a classic. Yeah, it is. Um, and then, uh, and then you actually have a book uh, on the topic, making all things new. Yeah, it's an attempt to. Uh, I wrote it with my friend Ben Glad, and it's an attempt to explain a little bit how the already not yet dynamic uh, connects with our experience of life in the church. So prayer, preaching, ministry, all, all, all those? All of those things, yeah. Missions, worship, all those kind of things. How the already not yet comes into play in that. So Very cool, very yeah. cool. All right, so athlete. All right, so. You want to tick them off for us? Sure. Um, in terms of this is now 26, right? Number so 26. We've got, uh, in the world of baseball, Wade Boggs, great third baseman for the Red Sox back in the yeah. 80s, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Rod Woodson, defensive back for the Steelers for many years, right? And the was he on the Oakland Raiders for a time as well? That I'm not sure about. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure he went to Purdue though. So I don't know. I, I think he's a uh, I don't know how local he is to us here in Winona Lake, but pretty sure he went to Purdue. Hmm. And then the three point sharpshooter Kyle Corver. Uh, who could pass for a twin brother for Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, and seems to have been in the league for ever. Ever. Yeah. yeah. And then for Ohio State, we've actually got two uh, that deserve mention. Uh, we'll, we'll start with a guy who had a great name, Ashton Yabodi. Yabodi. <laughs> he was a defensive back in the early 2000s. But the, the, the real number 26 in Ohio State lore is Robert Smith. And he went on to have a uh, seven or eight year career in the Viking uh, with the Vikings in the '90s. Played on those great Vikings teams with Randy Moss and um, Chris Carter. Uh, but Culpepper at all, um, or was Culpepper a little after him? That I don't remember. Maybe. Uh, but Robert Smith was a track star at, who played at Ohio State and was a running back. Had a broke the freshman ru- ru- rushing record at Ohio State. Hmm. Then decided not to play his sophomore year because he was ticked at how the coaches treated him. Oh, wow. Then he came back his junior year and had a a solid but not great season. Went on to the NFL, had a seven or eight year career in the NFL, I think, and retired basically saying, I'm still healthy, so I'm quitting now because I don't want to end up being, you know, being one of those guys that can barely walk when he's 45. Yeah. Uh, and always more of a thoughtful guy in terms of not not your sort of stereotypical dumb jock, but a very thoughtful, uh, engaged uh, kind of guy. So he was um, he Sounds was a little bit, bit like Andrew Luck before Andrew Luck. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And now he's a uh, college football uh, commentator for ESPN. Okay. So who do you like? Yeah, I mean. I'm I'm partial to Robert Smith, but I, I I I can be talked out of it. I don't remember Robert Smith playing. He obviously played in my lifetime, but, yeah. uh, but I just, early lifetime. Or, yeah. yeah, I just don't remember him. Uh, so that that makes it difficult for me. I Understood. remember I remember Rob Woodson. I remember Kyle Korver. Um, I, I'm a, Wade Boggs was before your time, but you're a big baseball. I'm fan. I'm a big baseball fan. Um, so I, I think I can get on board with Rob Smith. All right. All right, so we're going to go with Robert Smith. Very generic name. Yeah. <laughs> Very generic. True. It is true. So, all right, we got to wrap this thing up. One thing you liked this week, John. Yeah, one thing uh, Andrew and I enjoyed watching American Gospel uh, in the past, uh, I believe, over the weekend. 
Yes. And so that was uh, that was a great documentary, and we've we're looking forward to more from uh, that group of filmmakers. So yeah, we watched American yep. Gospel, and I know you're a big fan of American Gospel. I am, though my son, my younger son Jake, is a huge fan. He's probably watched both of those now four or five times, <laughs> and so um, he's 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 big on that. So. Uh, and it is available for free. The first one is available for free on Netflix, streaming on Netflix. Yeah, we. I watched the one called Christ Alone. That's, that's about the first the, one, about the Prosperity Gospel. Prosperity Gospel, yeah. yeah, and it's on Netflix right now for free. It's excellent. And also you can rent it through Amazon Prime. And there are two of them. There's the first one on Prosperity Gospel, and the second one is a little bit more big picture on just the nature of the gospel itself. Hmm. Um, very good. Both are excellent, worth your time. Uh, my one thing is uh, I played golf for the first time in probably like three or four years this past Saturday. Nice. And uh, went with my son, Jake, and that was a lot of fun. So, And um, I, I was just hoping not to embarrass myself. Mm-hmm. And I actually played really well. What was the score on 18? <laughs> now, this is, you know, for some people, this is not, you know, but I shot 89. That's good. For 18, which no. I, I think maybe in my life, I don't know if I've ever broken 90 before. Hmm. If I have, it's been maybe once. So including a chip in on the last hole. Oh, to secure. The... The, I didn't know because I, I hadn't <laughs> added up the numbers. But I, I, I putted from just off from deep in the fringe from about 30 feet out and, 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 and sunk and, it and knocked it in. So that was that was fun. But Okay, so, man, this is the epitome of various and sundry topics. So we ready Uh, to call Mission Accomplished? Yeah, we got to land this plane before we get to 50 minutes. Otherwise, it's just not going to be good. So uh, we'll call it Mission Accomplished. And so until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later.